This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter, looking at chapter 4, beginning verse 1. It's page um, 1016 in the church Bibles. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your word. It is food to our souls. It is a delight to our hearts. It is certainly, Lord, a light to our paths. And Father, we pray as we study these words in this passage before us today that your Spirit would be our guide and lead us into knowledge of your truth that we might have knowledge of you, we might know you and love you, our Lord. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. title of this sermon is Arm Yourselves. One might be forgiven if they thought perhaps this would be a sermon advocating you're using your Second Amendment rights. Uh, That's not what our sermon uh, is about, however, but arming yourself in the sense in which Peter describes it here in this passage Before us, he says in verse 1, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, that is, in his body, uh, you'll know Paul often uses the term flesh to refer to our fallen or sinful nature. Of course, that doesn't apply to Christ. Peter tends to use the term more simply to refer to the body, though not exclusively. But here he's talking about Christ's body, since Christ suffered in his earthly existence generally, and in his body particularly, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The word translated to arm means to supply yourself or to equip yourself with the tools or instruments or weapons needed to get the job done. So arm yourselves. We're to do this, he says, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, Peter has just been referring to that, writing about that in the chapter before this one. In verse 18, first verse in that section we looked at last time, 
while it does contain some things, uh, as Peter himself says of Paul's letters, we would say of Peter's, that are difficult and hard to understand, uh, the overall point is, is fairly clear. And it begins with verse 18. Since Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Well, Peter says we are to arm or equip ourselves with that same way of thinking that Jesus had that led him to be willing to suffer. What was that way of thinking? If we're to have the same way of thinking as Christ, what was it that led him to do what he did? Well, it was a willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake. The idea, idea being, if you back down from righteousness, the suffering would end, or at least grow less. But Christ was willing to suffer the righteous for the unrighteous. He was willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. First Peter chapter 2, passage we looked at uh, some weeks back, spells this out further. This is chapter 2, verse 21. Peter says, for this you have been called, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so, since Christ suffered for righteousness' sake, namely for us, for our sins, then we who bear his name, Christians, should be willing to follow his example. We should be willing, as Peter says, to follow in his footsteps. And so, we need to do that, we need to arm or equip ourselves with that same way of thinking, with that same mindset that Jesus had. Jesus was not about to sin to diminish the pressure, to diminish the hostility, to diminish the antagonism that he felt. Neither should we. But that's putting it pretty generally, as Peter says it here, to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so Peter then proceeds to flesh it out, to explain in a little more detail what that means. How do we have the same mindset that Jesus had? How do we know if we have that same mindset, a willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness, to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to suffer for the sake of Christ, to suffer for the sake of what is true? How do we know? Well, Peter lists some indicators here in the verses that follow, the passage that we read today, that help us to see if we have that same mindset, or at least something close to it, or if we don't. Some indicators here that kind of give us some, some, some ways to evaluate how well we're doing in arming ourselves with the same mindset as Jesus. What are they? Well, the first one is that if you have that same mindset as Jesus, you are changed in regard to sin. You are changed in regard to sin, with respect to sin. And this is what Peter says in verses 1 and 2. Notice he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there's a couple of ways to understand that. One is to say that somehow if you've suffered, that's caused you to stop sinning. That doesn't even seem to make sense biblically. 
So it seems to me that would be a misunderstanding of what Peter is saying here. But rather, what Peter is saying here is that someone has, who is willing to suffer in the flesh, someone who trusts God enough and entrusts himself to God enough or herself to God enough to be willing to suffer, is someone who has ceased from sin. Not that they're sinless, but as a lifestyle, as we'll see. That they have, in other words, they are a genuine Christian. They recognize their sin is, is harmful. Worst of all, it is, is an offense to a holy God. It is for those sins that Jesus died on the cross. And so the fact is, if someone is willing to suffer for righteousness sake, this is a person who has decided they're going to turn by the grace of God from sin to righteousness. And so they suffer. And so they feel antagonism. And so some of these things Peter goes on to write about begin to kick in. You see, that's, that's one of the things that he gives as an indicator here is that you are, if, if you have the same mindset as Christ, you are changed with regard to sin in that you have seen sin for what it is. Sin doesn't bring joy, it brings harm. Sin doesn't bring life, it brings death. Sin does not please God, it offends God. Sin is not something you'll get away with, that we will all be accountable before God. And so we stop, we turn from it. Again, not, we're not sinless, but as the general mindset, the general purpose of our lives, it's our desire not to sin. But then he puts it positively this in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in your body, here in this world, so as long as you were here, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So first you have the negative. The person who is willing to suffer for righteousness' sake is a person who has decided to turn from sin negatively, to stop sinning as much as they can, but then to live for the will of God. Now, We've talked about God's will in different ways, and that's often a question that, that consumes Christians, especially younger Christians, who are faced with some pretty momentous decisions like, you know, where should I go to school? What, what vocation should I follow? Whom should I marry? You know, what is God's will? How do I know if it's God's will that I do this or not, or if I take this job or not? Questions about God's will. Well, uh, God does lead us, I think, in, in particular ways by his Holy Spirit, as our minds are informed um, and instructed by his word. I think God does lead us in very specific ways. But sometimes it's easier to see how we led as we look back. You know, as we look at life through the rearview mirror, we can look back and say, wow, you know, I really see how the Lord led me and protected me, you know, moved me this way, kept me from going that way. But looking at the future, that sometimes can be hard. I often wish that, um, you know, sometimes I would, I would get an email from heaven indicating to me, um, you know, what, what choice I should make, what decision I should make. I did get an email from Jesus once. This was uh, when we were coming back, speaking of Peru. And um, one of my son's bags had gotten mixed up with the bags of another group. And uh, the hotel said that they would notify me if it turned up, and we really didn't expect it to. But one day, I got an email from the manager of the Royal Inca 2 Hotel in Cusco. His name was Jesus. Okay, Jesus. 
but that's the only time I've got an email from Jesus. It was just notifying me our son's bag had been found, and by a, a remarkable series of events, it wound up, Barbara picked it up at the MTW office right across the highway here. But no, God generally does not lead us in that way. We trust him. We go with what we know. We make a decision in faith. But sometimes God reveals very specifically what his will is in Scripture. You know, we think of uh, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, This is God's will for you, your sanctification. You know, that you live holy lives, that you turn from sin, sexual immorality and other forms of sin, and live in obedience. That's God's will for you. And we find it spelled out in detail in the scriptures. In a passage like we read earlier in Ephesians 5, what is God's will? Do you, want to, do you really want God's will for your life? Then read Ephesians 5 and other passages like to read the scriptures and take it seriously. So that's the first indicator. If you have this mindset that you are a changed man or woman or child with regard to sin, the mindset of Christ was obedience to his father at all costs. That's the mindset of the Christian, the one who has the mindset, the way of thinking of Christ. And armed with that is that I will, by God's grace, obey him, cease from sinning, seek the will of God and do the will of God, regardless of the cost. That's the first indicator that you are armed with this same mindset as Christ had, that you have a new relationship to sin. You you stop, you turn from it, you put it to death. And you seek out and obey the will of God. Second indicator that we find here in this passage is in verses 3 and 4. Not only are you changed with regard to sin, you're changed with regard to people. Your relationship with people, the whole dynamic there has changed. Changes in this way, you are through with their and formerly perhaps your sinful pagan lifestyle. You're through with that. Look at verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. In other words, the serious, debauched party life, um, a staple at college campuses across our nation, but not limited to them. But part of the change means that you are through with living the sinful pagan lifestyle that you once lived and once lived with other sinful fellow pagans. Now, Peter says, almost sarcastically, I think intentionally sarcastically, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You know, in other words, he's saying, look, you've spent enough time doing those things. You've done all of that you need to do. Of course, the point is you don't need to do any of it, but, you know, let what has been done suffice. That's plenty. He mentions Gentiles again, using that term not so much to refer to ethnic Gentiles, because I'm convinced some of his readers, some of these Christians he's writing to were Gentiles, but now using that term to indicate those who are outside the covenant, outside of, of Christ. So we've, we looked at that earlier in First Peter And we also saw uh, back in Ephesians where Paul uses the term in that way uh, very clearly to indicate that he is referring there not so much to ethnic Gentiles, but he is referring to those who are um, non-Christians, 
And Peter's using the term in that way, even though some of the readers, some of those he's writing to, and certainly we are Gentile believers, but he's using the term to refer to non-Christians, you know, in the old Jewish sense of those outside the covenant. Well, now it's still those outside of his covenant of grace. Uh, Time past suffices for doing what they want to do. Notice that, that the word they want is critical. This is what they want. This is what they desire. And then he goes on to list some of the features of this pagan lifestyle. It's worth noting uh, that the, um, the first several refer to appetites of various kind. The last one refers to the idolatry, refers to the practice of uh, sin uh, within their religion, but just the idolatry of it itself. Uh, all of them have to do, in some sense, with a lack of self-control, uh, with self-destructive behaviors, uh, not only self-destructive but harmful to others. Well, what are they? Well, he mentions sensuality, uh, any behavior lacking moral constraint, uh, probably mostly referring to those sexual in nature, but could be violent in nature. Passions, uh, all... Human impulses toward indulgence, uh, sinful indulgences of a sexual nature. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties refers just generally to, you know, bacchanalian carousing, uh, partying, you know, just, uh, basically out of control. And then he mentions lawless idolatry. Interesting, because we hear idolatry and we think, well, well, sure. But that was an unusual idea outside of the Judeo-Christian religions. Among the Jews, obviously, they had a strong sense of the meaning of idolatry, to worship other gods other than the one true God. And then among the Christians, interestingly, historically, even in Islam, which kind of in a twisted sort of way is an offshoot from Christianity and inherits a lot of its background thinking from Christian and, and Jewish ideas, biblically, uh, but in the pagan religions, the idea of idolatry was, was not prominent and practically unknown. Why? Because they didn't have any problem adding yet one more deity to the pantheon. In fact, boy, if there's the possibility of another god out there, we want to try to keep him happy too. So the idea of idolatry was a bit of a foreign one. What got the Christians in trouble was not that they worshipped Christ, it was that they worshipped only Christ. It, it was that they were exclusive, to use a modern-day profanity. It was to say that uh, it, it was because they would say, well, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him. That's what got them into trouble. That and the fact that they wouldn't burn incense to Caesar and were seen as a threat to the empire because they refused to participate in the civic religion that supposedly kept the gods at bay. That's why they were sometimes accused of being atheists, because they rejected the Roman gods, even as they worshipped Christ. So it was not that they worshipped Christ that got them in hot water. It was that they worshipped only Christ. It was because they said that these other gods were no gods, and these other religions were worthless, and they rejected them. Does this sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. Our, uh, our society tolerates everything except intolerance. It will include everything except exclusivity. 
It's very similar in our day to what Peter was dealing with and what these Christians were dealing with in there. In this multicultural situation, this multi-religious situation, to come and say Christ is the only way was offensive in their day, just as it is in ours. Everything spiritual seems acceptable, except the exclusive claims of Christ. It gave offense then, gives offense now. And so, you know, as he's talking here about how you're changed in regard to people, it means on the one hand you're through with living along with them in their sinful pagan lifestyle, but being changed with regard to people also means that you're willing to take heat for your godly Christian lifestyle. This is what he goes on to say in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised. When you come along, you know, you used to join them in their carousing, and, and you come along and say, no, yeah, I don't do that anymore. Really? Ooh, what happened to you? You know, and maybe some of you have been there, but maybe became a Christian later in life, and you surprise some people when you would no longer join in doing with old friends the kinds of things you once did. They're surprised. And they malign you. They're surprised at you, but they also malign you. Now, that could take, they're, they're, they're being hostile toward you, could take different forms. It may just be outright disgust. It might be uh, harsh words. It may just be sort of joking. Oh, you got religion, did you? Which is kind of a veiled, low-level contempt. But there is a level of hostility. There is a level of their maligning you, not approving you, but being against what has happened. And that was, that was true then. Back then, pagans viewed Christians as killjoys. Because of the way that they live, the things that they, they would do, the things they wouldn't do. They would abstain from the theater, which back then involved, as it does in some cases now, some pretty risque performances. Uh, they, of course, rejected the, uh, the, the gladiators, the gladiatorial combat, bloody, gory, uh, the chariot races and so forth. Uh, the, the immoral lifestyle, the drunkenness, the lying, the coveting, the theft all of the stuff that went along with just natural pagan lifestyles. Granted, even among pagan writers, there were ideals about what was right and good, but they didn't live up to them like they should have. And all of this uh, tended to saddle the Christians with being uh, haters of humanity and traitors to Rome because of the way that they lived. And so, yes, they were maligned. They were slandered. Things were said about the Christians that weren't true. And some of the early Christian writings are actually defenses of Christians and what they believe and how they live. In fact, Peter's letter itself is, is an early part of that as he's encouraging Christians to put to the lie all the slander that is circulating about them and show themselves to have strong homes, to be good citizens, to live godly and upright lives. But it's also true that the unbelievers will malign you because your lifestyle exposes them. You know, they say misery loves company. Sin loves company. You know, I may have done something wrong, but I wasn't the only one. Well, 
when you won't join them in these things, it may, it may convict. It may make them uncomfortable. It may make them feel bad about themselves. And they don't like that. They don't like the fact that you do that, that the light exposes the darkness, Paul wrote of in Ephesians 5. And so they lash out at you. They malign you. Instead of looking at their own ways, they look at you and say, well, you're just a, you know, you're just a hypocrite. I know you don't really live that way. You know, and true, Christians, while we have our standard, don't live up to it fully the way we would like to, the way that we should. But, um, but that does convict. It does make them uncomfortable. So we're changed in regard to sin. We're through with that. We may suffer for it, but we're committed to doing the will of God. We're changed in regard to people. We no longer want to go on living in that former pagan way of life. But at the same time, we will take heat for our godly Christian lives. And then the third thing, third indicator, if you have the mindset of Christ, if you're armed with that, is that you are changed in regard to God. Changed in regard to God. Now, this may seem obvious. The whole point of Christianity is to change our relationship to God, to reconcile us to God. But notice how it plays out here in verses uh, 5 and 6. On the one hand, those who malign you, those who reject you, who reject what you stand for, are accountable to God. Verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That follows. Remember, when they malign you, they'll have to give an account to God. Not to you. It's not your place to make them pay. It's your place to pray for them, to, to return good for evil, to love them in the face of their hate toward you. But to re- re- one way that makes it easier is simply to remember they will have to give an account to God. But then verse 6, is, Peter says, not so with you. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, in some ways, this starts to sound like what he was talking about in the passage we looked at last week, you know, where Jesus went and preached the spirits in prison. I don't think he's talking about the same thing here. And he's not saying here that uh, even the gospel is preached to those when they were dead, the point is it was preached to people who now have died, but it was preached to them while they were alive, but now they've died. That's what he's saying. This is why the gospel is preached even to those, you know, preached then to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they have died, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This point is that death does not undo this. Death is not the end. We have to see beyond that, rightly, to understand what is going on here. But we have this relationship with God that exists now, but will exist even beyond the grave. Uh, John Calvin puts it this way. He says, we see that death does not hinder Christ from always being our defender. It is a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Even if Christ does not appear as deliverer in this life, Yet his redemption is not void or without effect, for his power extends even to the dead. Well, certainly it does. You are with him. You are redeemed by him. See, what Peter's saying is death does not invalidate the promises Christ has made to you, nor does it invalidate the the judgments he makes or pronounces, the warnings he pronounces to those who are wicked. uh, Peter says this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead now, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might, might live in the spirit the way God does. You see, we have to take a view that extends beyond death, which goes back to 
how we are to love those who are malignant toward us, to recognize that it's God who takes care of justice. It's God who sets to rights, both in punishing the evildoers and vindicating the righteous. And so Peter says, you know, to arm yourself with the mindset of Christ, how do you know? Well, you have a changed relationship towards sin. You don't love your sin. You don't want your sin. You hate your sin, even as you commit your sin. But the tenor of your life is that you've turned from sin toward the will of God. It's changed your relationship to people. You're no longer joining sinful pagans in their sinful pagan lifestyles. And yet you are willing to take heat for a godly Christian lifestyle. And it's changed your relationship to God. God is not your judge. God is your savior, your uh, refuge, and that's for this life and for the life to come, just as those who malign you will have to give an account to God. They're not getting away with anything. Everything will be brought to light and sorted out on that day. It takes faith to, to wait for that, to look for that, to be willing to trust God for that. So do you have a mindset? Are you armed with the mindset of Christ that says, I am willing to live in obedience to Christ even if I take heat for it? In the workplace, in the classroom, in the neighborhood, wherever. I'm willing to obey Christ even if I suffer from others for it. Even if I lose friends for it. Even if I lose my job for it. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where, you ha- where you've had to choose? You have to say, I'm going to obey Christ rather than please people. When you said, I'm through with sin, and with God's help, I'm going to live according to the will, the revealed will of God in Scripture. If you haven't been put in situations where you have to make that choice, Either you're extremely young, age marked by single digits, or you're living in sin. You see, if you go with the flow, there's no resistance. It's when you're standing against the current that you begin to feel the pressure. It's when you're swimming upstream that it can be hard. If you've never had to make those kinds of choices at at some level, then you have to ask yourself, am I merely going along with the flow of sinful pagan behavior. Because you see, to live as Christ, to be armed with the mindset, the way of thinking of Jesus, will inevitably, and sometimes often, cause you to have to stand against the prevailing current. We need to recognize that. And when that happens, and it's not easy, when it happens, however, to be encouraged by it. Because suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for Christ, suffering for who you are as a Christian, is one of the best indicators of the reality of your faith and your allegiance to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that it would be so. We pray that our lives would so reflect Christ that others would see that, Lord, and We recognize even that that will sometimes bring hostility or antagonism, maybe at a low level, maybe nothing overt, nothing physically violent, but Lord, we recognize that human nature has not changed. They hated Christ, they will hate Christ in us. Even so, Lord, we pray, and I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here, 
that we would be armed with this, that the likeness of Christ would be seen in us, that people would react. But, Father, we pray not just react so that we are maligned, but we would react so that there are opportunities for the gospel, that while some, Lord, would, would laugh, that others would be led to believe by the reality of our testimony. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.